Okay, I have a story I'm going to tell you about two siblings, and their names are Jeff and Hannah. And Jeff and Hannah were a brother and sister, and they lived with their mom and dad, and one day the family was having guests over for dinner. Their mom was rushing about cleaning the house and preparing for the guest's arrival. I need you two to clean your bathrooms today, she told Jeff and Hannah. Okay, said Hannah. She knew her mother had a lot to do, so she didn't want to argue. But Jeff didn't want to clean the bathroom. Ah, oh, the bathroom is so dirty. I don't want to clean it, he whined. Hannah set to work cleaning. Soon, she saw a book resting on, her, on the bathroom counter. It was her favorite book. She picked it up and began to read. She then got lost and forgot in the book and forgot all about the bathroom. Jeff also set to work. He scrubbed the tile wildly, whining and shouting. He complained the entire time he was cleaning. Soon, Hannah's friend called. We're having a pool party this afternoon. Do you want to come? Well, I have to clean the bathroom, but I guess I can come. The bathroom can wait, Hannah replied. At the end of the day, Jeff had finally finished the bathroom, and although he yelled and complained the entire time, it was clean. Hannah had forgotten all about her bathroom, and although she had been willing to clean it, she forgot about it in the end. So who do you think the mother who do you think was the mother's favorite child? <laughs> all right. You can go back to your seats. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Bryce. About six weeks ago, Pastor Don told the story of the three little wolves and the big, big bad pig. How many of you remember that? How many of you remember last week's lectionary reading? That illustrates the power of stories. This summer, the junior youth Sunday school class has been reading stories, writing stories, and talking about stories. This morning, we're going to share some of our work with you. Our stories and reflections fall into four themes, as you can see in the bulletin. Stories about bullies, stories about change, troubling stories, and Jesus' stories. The story Bryce Yoder just told is uh, based on one of Jesus' stories. Did you recognize it? the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21. Jesus had come to the temple in Jerusalem after a long pilgrimage from Judea. A lot of people crowded around to be near him and hear what he had to say. For the priests and temple regulars, I imagine it felt a lot like it would if a street evangelist crowded into our lobby in the middle of a church service with half a dozen or a dozen followers and started making a lot of noise. What, what would you do? Uh, well, the priests and the elders of the temple went up to Jesus and said, who do you think you are? And Jesus responded by telling a story very much like the one Bryce just told of the children. I have another question for you, and I'd like a show of hands again. How many of you think that the priests and elders who confronted Jesus in the temple were bullies? It's a tough question, isn't it? A tougher question still is, well, what do you do to change a bully's behavior? How do you stop a bully from bullying? That's what the story of the three little wolves and the big bad pig was about. Three cuddly wolf pups had built themselves a nice wooden house. A big bad pig came up with a sledgehammer and knocked it down. Maybe the wolf pups were squatting on the pig's property or something. I don't know. From the story Pastor Don told, it sounded like the big bad pig was just, just did it out of meanness. The wolf pups laboriously rebuilt using bricks this time. And the big bad pig showed up with a wrecking ball and knocked it down again. 
Then the wolf, the wolf pups built themselves a regular bunker out of concrete and steel. This time the pig came with explosives and blew it up. The wolf pups were out of money by this time, so they just planted wildflowers in the rubble and built themselves a nice bed of roses to sleep in. The big bad pig showed up once more with a weed whacker and some Roundup, but he took one sniff of the fragrant flowers and he was magically transformed. Instead of tearing up the flower beds, he sat down with the wolf pups and had tea. Writers have a term for this, call, this sort of plot twist. It's called the deus ex machina, or ghost in the machine, and it's considered uh, a cheap trick. <laughs> Christine Bai is going to tell you how the story of the big bad pig really ended. Then Emma Eitzen will tell you a real story about bullying. Then Caleb and Emily Lehman, Clara Waywright, and Summer Brooks will read to you from the Gospel of Matthew about how Jesus himself was bullied and what he said to do about bullies. Bullies don't become good people by smelling flowers. So how do you stop a bully like the big bad pig? I have way too much information on this topic. In the past two years, I've heard about 20 various lessons on bullying. Prevention is always the last topic discussed. There are really only two ways to stop a bully. If you are being bullied, go to an adult or ignore the bully. Unfortunately, because the big bad pig is not your typical bully, the wolves would find it impossible to carry out one of these steps. Obviously, no adult can control the pig or he would be in jail, and trying to ignore someone who keeps destroying your house is impossible. The wolves are alone. This story almost can't end well. We can conclude the story actually ends something like this. The big bad pig is so frustrated he does not even try to blow down the house of flowers. Instead, he steals a B-2 bomber from the airbase. Grinning evilly, he flies it over the doomed house in which the little wolves are trembling under their flower beds, wondering what they ever did wrong. The pig drops his bombs and blows the house to oblivion. After completing a victory barrel roll, he flies off into the sunset, feeling satisfied for no reason. Or, maybe the pig had a radical meeting with God and changed for the better, just like Paul and Zacchaeus. If the pig changed, it was not because he smelled a flower. It was because he was transformed by God's mercy, grace, and love. Think about this. Is being a bully as bad as being bullied? In sixth grade, I remember being a bully as well as a victim of bullies. We all come to a point of life when boys and girls start to attract each other. Well, I came to that stage of life. I was attracted to a boy in my class, so I sent him a note confessing that I liked him. This guy ended up showing all of his friends the note. The news got around fast, and soon I was being tormented for liking him. I always wondered why they never did to other people. I guess popularity comes in a little bit. I wasn't as popular, and I liked a popular kid. Well, that didn't match up too well. Students began to laugh at me in the hallways, nudge me at gym, and bug me at lunch. It got a little rough after a while, and names were called, and I was the victim of it all. I felt scared to tell anyone at home, because all I knew they were going to say were, 
deal with it, ignore them, or I'll punch them for you. (laughs) Unfortunately, I didn't know how to deal with it. Ignoring them would make them be worse on me, and I didn't want to be known as the wimpy girl who had a brother deal with them. I resulted in going to the counselor's office. She had me tell her who I believed was the leader of it all. Then she just talked to us and told the boys to apologize. They didn't sound at all apologetic. At lunch, I was known as the one who'd ratted on so-and-so. Now, at home, I can deal with three boys telling me not to rat on them, but at school, it's a little too much. After I couldn't stand it anymore, I started to bully others. Students lower people considered lower rank than me. The thing was, I could never bring myself to harm someone like push them, call them really terrible names, or throw things at them like I experienced. It takes about 95% of my energy to do that. Worst I've done is probably call them stupid, break pencils that look useless, or just let a binder fall. When I did those things, it felt good at the time. Then later, I would feel terrible and go apologize. Hoping to solve the whole scenario, I went to one of my teachers. This wasn't just any teacher. She taught about bullying, why drugs are bad, and how to keep the human body healthy. I told her my conflict, and she offered to do a whole class period about it. I was thankful I wasn't there at the same time I wish I could hear the conversation. Next day, I got a lot of apologies and hugs. I guess that's what I wanted to make me feel better. I sensed a little bit of fake apologies here and there. But I didn't really make any true friends of that, but I wasn't bothered as much. I also learned why my parents would always tell me to deal with it or ignore them. They knew I was smart enough to figure out how to solve the problem without their help. I understood that being a bully can be as bad as being bullied. God helped me through this time, and I will always think, bless the bully and pray for the bullied. You never know what could happen. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophecy to us, Messiah, who hit you.
You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I will tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Change isn't easy. Still, it does happen. Big change usually begins with little changes, and little changes can begin with stories. A couple of weeks ago, there was a discussion on National Public Radio's Talk of the Nation entitled, What to Say in the Face of Offensive Remarks. An Arab-American caller described his experience of being confronted by his boss shortly after the 2009 shootings in Fort, in Fort Hood by a Muslim and being grilled by his boss about his feelings about America and terrorism. He told her that he loved America, that his grandfather had been a soldier in World War II, and then he began to cry. He couldn't help himself, he said. When he began to cry, his boss became upset, even frantic. I suppose that in that moment, she suddenly saw a person who she'd been categorizing as a Middle Easterner, one of them, as a person with feelings and hopes and fears not so different from her own, somebody like me. At their best, stories have the power to bring about this kind of transformation. Stories move us, and in moving us, they provide occasions to practice empathy. When I heard that Arab-American story, tears came to my eyes. In imagining that man's experience, I was able, in a sense, to share it. In sharing it, I became a bit more sensitive to the impact of racist comments and a bit more inclined to speak out when I hear such comments. I even thought of some practical strategies for dealing with racist comments. So stories can bring about change in small and subtle ways. Bigger changes usually take something more like a kick in the pants. In the years following Jesus' death and resurrection, Saul of Tarsus was worse than the big bad pig. He was tracking down Christians and killing them. Caleb, Clara, Emily, and Summer are going to read you about Saul's kick in the pants from Acts 8 and 9. Then Maddie Jantz will tell you a personal story about change. Then Colin Brooks will explain how even fantasy fiction can be good for you.
Okay, this one works. Can you do it with one? On the day of Stephen's stoning, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This year was my first year in the Mennonite Children's Choir of Lancaster. So it was also my first year participating in the four-day-long tour. I admit I wasn't excited. I didn't know too many people, and I wasn't ecstatic about being with almost strangers for four long days. Although, when packing time came, I solemnly packed up and got on the bus. On the third day, I was tired and homesick, but I was having a fun time. Everyone was sitting in a circle at devotions, and we were having our closing prayer. And may I just add, it was not a short one. My eyes were open, and I wasn't really listening. Then I saw one of my friends, Melody. She was swaying back and forth, back and forth, smiling a big smile. I thought she was sick because her face was beet red. I began to get nervous because I didn't know what was going on. When we all said amen, she got up and asked to use the bathroom. 
As she skipped away, I looked to my friend Anna and told her what had happened. I asked her what she thought. She said she knew. Melody had seen God. I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Most people would consider that just something to do for fun or even a waste of time. But if you think deeply, anything can teach life lessons, even fiction. I have learned many facts, a great deal of interesting trivia, but I have gleaned much deeper meaning as well. The well-known trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, at first glance seems nothing more than a well-thought-out adventure tale. It's full of heroes, villains, conflict, and action. But if you look deeper, you'll see it also tells of greed, anger, and prejudice. As you may know, the story follows a small group of various people who are the couriers of a ring. The One Ring. This ring gives eternal life, extreme power, and essentially full control over all the nations of the world. That would be great, right? You could live forever. You could rule the nations much better than the current leaders. Help people who are less fortunate. Bask in the glory, yes? Well, there's a catch. Once you use the ring, it takes control of your sanity. The longing for the ring and its power overrules all else. What may have been noble intentions at first descend into madness and a lust for power. As the story progresses, you meet characters who wanted to use the ring to crush their enemies to save their own people, and others who succumb to the ring's powers. A particularly infamous example of this extreme want is Gollum, who killed his own friend to get the ring for himself. But these kinds of things would never happen outside of a story, would they? They may be more common than you think. Using the ring to mercilessly slaughter an enemy to protect one's own people is nearly the same as nuclear warfare. Okay, you might say, that makes sense. But no one would murder their friend over greed. Every day we see signs of the ring, even if we don't recognize it. On the news and in the paper, we often see things like people stealing money from their own company or a colleague murdering a partner to get ahead in life. Here, greed is the ring. It is dangerous and alluring. And while the newspaper examples are extreme, not all examples are. A high school student making fun of another just to be cool is a ring and is not but destructive. Something as simple as bettering yourself can be your ring if it's at the expense of another. The one ring illustrates all of this, illustrates this through fantasy. I'm going to ask for another show of hands here. How many of you have seen the new Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises? Okay. Um, I need some advice from you. Emma hasn't seen the movie yet. Many of her friends have. She desperately wants me to take her to see the movie. Now, Emma, can you close your eyes for a second? Close your eyes. How many of you think that I should take Emma to see The Dark Knight Rises? Okay. So, Emma, I'll give you a report. Did you actually look? Oh, you sneak. So some of you thought your arms twisted, I'm sure. Sort of. uh, the Dark Knight Rises is an action movie based on a comic book. It's supposed to entertain, not to edify. 
Even so, the movie is designed to make us experience empathy, often in unexpected places. For example, at the end of the movie, we discover the villain is not quite the monster we supposed, and we see a tear drip down his face. But the movie is shot through and through with extreme violence. At no point is this violence something we're supposed to think about or question. It's just part of the formula. Because The Dark Knight Rises is a powerful movie, it's also a persuasive movie. In Batman's world, being a peacemaker doesn't look like a good idea. It's not even an option, really. Because of that, The Dark Knight suggests that being a peacemaker is not such a great option in our world, either. The movie doesn't just depict violence, in other words, it subtly advocates it. In this way, it subtly supports and sustains a culture of violence. Now I ask you, is that a good reason to prevent Emma from seeing the movie? Is that a good reason to avoid the movie myself? These are judgment calls, obviously. I think it's worth noting that Jesus didn't shy away from horrible things like leprosy and demons. He didn't shy away from violence either. He willingly died on the cross after all. He told some very violent stories like the parable of the tenants who murdered their landlord's son. And on one or two occasions, he got extremely angry, like when he overturned the, the tables in the temple courtyard. He just review, refused to do violence to people. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. A peacemaker isn't someone who never experiences violent impulses and ideas. It's someone who extends peace in spite of violent impulses and ideas. The goal of a follower of Christ is not to avoid all thoughts of violence, it's to act peaceably and help others to act peaceably. The way to change, I think, the way to change a culture of violence is not to avoid it, but to work actively to create an alternative culture of peace in our homes, in our communities, and in the world. That's what Jesus did in his time. Violent entertainments like A Dark Knight Rises are without question part of our mainstream culture of violence and they tend to sustain it. Nevertheless, engaging with such entertainments, even enjoying them, doesn't necessarily mean embracing or supporting the culture of violence. Violent entertainments can be harmful or healthy, pro-social or anti-social. They can make us more prone to violence or less. The difference lies not in what they depict or how they depict it. The difference lies in what we do with them. And that's not up to the entertainments. That's up to us. If we are actively working to create a culture of peace, I don't think we need to fear depictions of violence, entertaining or otherwise. A culture of peace has the power to recuperate and even transform dark images and dark ideas. That's one of the profound messages of the Easter story. There are some truly awful stories in the Bible. There are even stories in which God behaves like a bully. It's hard to know what to think about these stories, but they are obviously there for us to think about. Caleb, Clara, Emily, and Summer are going to read one of these stories from Genesis 22. Then Isaac Jantz will offer some reflections on another dark story, Hunger Games, a popular novel and movie for young adults in which children murder each other in a government-sponsored competition. Some time later, God tested Abraham. Abraham. Here I am. 
Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up. Father? Yes, my son. The fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by his horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On, on the mountain, mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Well, you already heard the, um, the main plot of The Hunger Games from Dirk earlier. <clears throat> I will be focusing on a specific scene and what happened when my class, my eighth grade class, saw it last year for a uh, reward for doing the PSSAs. First, let me set the scene for you, both in The Hunger Games and in the movie theater where I watched it with my classmate, classmates. Imagine 150 13 to 14 year old boys and girls about a week from the end of the school year, on a half day which pretty much consisted of watching a movie. Not the calmest group of people. Okay, now you get the picture in your mind. Now the movie. The scene has to do with a main character, Katniss, who is going to get medicine for her injured friend, Peta. Also, this scene, to, to, makes, to make sense, you must know that Katniss, earlier in the book, teams up with a young girl from, a di from another district named Rue, but sadly they get separated and Rue dies. So what happens in the scene is Katniss runs out into the open and she is tackled immediately by a girl and the girl puts a, a knife to her neck and mocks her about the death of Rue. Then out of nowhere, a boy named Thresh from the same district as Rue grabs the girl by the neck and yells, did you kill her? She only yells from help from her allies and never directly talks of Thresh. Thresh slams her in the head with a rock, killing her. This is the weird part. Everyone in the theater just started cheering and clapping. And and that's the part I wanted to talk about. I was at the time feeling like everyone else, and for some reason I found myself clapping. And then I thought, why? And doesn't that just make me as bad as the characters in the movie that watch this for entertainment? I think these are the kind of thoughts that we should think about more often when we listen to normal stories and Bible stories, and how we should live our lives and live for Jesus. So before we look at the bad guys in the story, perhaps we should look at ourselves first.
We've been talking to you today about how stories can stretch us, even dark and disturbing stories. That can be a power for good. We discovered another power for good in stories, too. We've had quite a few people tell personal stories in church recently. Two weeks ago, Mark and Mary Hurst told stories about their work in Australia. Earlier this summer, the MYF told us stories about their experiences in Guatemala. In July, we heard personal stories from Jay Parrish and Elsie Pennington, Margaret High and Kristen Oberholzer. In sharing time, every Sunday, people have told us about hard times and happy times. We've listened, we've laughed, we've wept, and in all of this, we've grown closer. This is a terrific group of young folks, as you can see. They're really interested in this community. They're invested in this community. Um, I've observed that they don't always pay close attention to sermons. Sorry, Pastor. Uh, but I have noticed that they do pay very close attention whenever someone from the congregation shares a personal story, and they tend to pick up on stories. So in sharing stories with you this morning, the junior youth are inviting you to continue to share your stories with each other and with us. That's one way that we can grow closer as a community. We have a couple more of Jesus' stories to share with you. First, Caleb Bai will tell you his version of the parable of the rich fool from Luke 12. Then Summer, Clara, Emily, and Caleb Lehman will read you the parable of the sower from Matthew 13. Now, after Jesus told that parable, his disciples asked him, Hey, dude, how come you tell stories all the time? Listen carefully to Jesus' answers. Then to conclude, we have a blessing for you. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. One day, a person went to a grocery store, and as he was leaving, bought a lottery ticket that had the highest winnings. He went home and sat down to scratch his card. When he was done, he couldn't believe his eyes. He had won. Immediately, he drove off and collected the money. The next day, many friends came over and demanded some of the money. They left him, but each time he refused them, and they left very angry, and some of them even hated him. Soon family members came asking for money as well, but in his greed, he did not give them any. In the end, everyone he cared about no longer cared for him, and he was left for nothing except for his money. Then Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. 
It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. The seeing they do not see, the hearing they do not hear or understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has, be, has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and make it unfruitful. But, but the, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown.